Are you recording? All right, I'm going. All right, I'm going to read the thing. A clock is ticking on the bridge of the USS Pine Island, a seaplane tender anchored in the lee of an iceberg at the very bottom of the Ross Sea, just off the coast of Antarctica. To the ship's executive officer and interim commander, Isidore Schwartz, the sound is worse than the impossibly cold drafts flooding the room despite its steam pipes and electric heaters. Schwartz sees himself and his task commander, George Dufek, who is seated across the chart-littered table as men of action. They're used to barking commands, not sitting and waiting with a pile of featureless navigational charts and a handful of onion-skin message forms hastily scribbled from the radioman. The one on top is the one Schwartz can't help but keep glancing at. It's innocuous enough, a routine patrol transmission from one of the Pine Island's planes, but it ought to have been followed by more, another every half hour, and it hasn't been. The plane that sent it, the George One, is Schwartz's responsibility. He greenlit its launch last night when the Pine Island saw a rare window of calm weather. Since then, the storms have socked in again. Outside the portholes of the bridge, the view is only lashing snow, heavy seas, and the eerie yellow-gray sky of the Antarctic summer twilight. On deck, despite the sickly light and worsening wind, the flight crews stationed aboard the Pine Island are staring toward the north, over the shoulder of the iceberg. They scan the clouds uselessly with binoculars and check their watches. No one pays attention to the weather of the heavy seas. They have friends aboard the George One. Schwartz can't hesitate any longer. He forces himself to face facts. The George One has gone down somewhere in that mess of icy sea, whipping wind, and driving snow, and every second he hesitates spells additional peril for her crew, who are almost certainly in need of help from the Pine Island, Together, he and Dufek compose a message to their task force commander, Rear Admiral Richard Cruzen, aboard a destroyer fighting through pack ice some 300 miles away. The message reads in part, Plane number one, voice called George. Captain Caldwell and flight crew three hours overdue. According to Rescue Doctrine, have made preparations for search and rescue as follows. Plane number two standing by for flight as soon as weather permits. In a few minutes, the radio man delivers the terse reply from Cruzen. We join you in hoping for a favorable outcome. The weather, the weird twilight, and the heavy seas cease to become meaningful for Isidore Schwartz. He orders fresh coffee, fixes his habitual snarl in place, and stalks down to the ship's hold to see who he can scream at about getting the George II in the air as soon as humanly possible. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. My name is Ella. I am a professor of Antarctic exploration mishaps here at Relative Disasters University. And I'm her brother Greg, polar survival expert at Relative Disasters Antarctic Headquarters. Thank you so much for that horrifying story, Greg. Today, we are going to be taking a look at the crash of the George One, a United States Navy seaplane that went down during a 1946 mission to map the South Pole. I'm going to apologize in advance. I went down quite a rabbit hole with this one. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of rabbit holes to go down with this one. As soon as you get into, like, polar exploration, like, the rabbit holes just open up and they branch and sometimes they connect and sometimes they don't. I'll do my best to be brief. Uh, this might... <laughs> turn into our first six-hour episode. Oh. So... So you may be wondering... <laughs> what the heck the United States uh, Air Force was doing down there. Well, it wasn't the Air Force, it was the Navy. It was the Navy. Please don't make that mistake again. They get very mad. I'm sure they That do. was one thing I learned in my research. It's like calling a Marine somebody from the Army. Just don't do that. You will get spoken to very firmly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You would think that you would, well, I'm not sure who you would send if you wanted to do an exploration. I guess the Navy is a good the choice to explore sense. the Antarctic, yeah. right? They've got boats, they've got planes, yeah. they're, they're good to go. Uh, they also have polar explorer Richard Byrd. Have you heard of Richard Byrd? No, I have not. So he is an American, he's from Virginia. He is obsessed with the Arctic. Uh, and I don't know, have you ever read anything about Arctic exploration from like... 
the 1860s through the 1950s. It's this super fascinating time where, like, yeah, it becomes, like, the height of masculinity to go on an Arctic exploration. It was sort of, it, it became the, the semi-modern analog to, like, you know, discovering new and interesting places in Africa and South America. It was, like, the last yes. unexplored place. So, I mean, yeah, and it's like brutal. Like, you oh, can yeah. barely survive. I mean, we had to go to the moon to find a less hospitable place. <laughs> Good job, America. Yay, we did it. So, Bird is one of these guys. He just sees. First, he did a lot of work in the Arctic, um, and then he gets interested in the Antarctic, and he starts exploring down there in the 1930s. His big thing is the South Pole. Okay. And he wants to build an American base on the South Pole. So he kind of has like these scrappy, poorly funded missions. <laughs> you can't call them missions because they're not really authorized by anyone. He just goes down to Antarctica and like builds a hut, spends the winter there. Okay. So he does this during the 30s and he's also in the Navy at this time. He gets called back into service in the 40s. After the war is over, he pesters the Navy to let him go back to Antarctica and do it right this time. First of all, he wants to map the entire continent. Okay. He's not thinking small at all. He wants to bring back penguins. <laughs> he wants okay. to see if there's uranium in the ice South Pole. <laughs> okay. Uh, he just has he has a bunch of different things. He has a huge wish list. So is this is this what led to Operation High Jump? We're getting there, Craig. We're getting. I'm sorry. I'm, am I skipping? Uh, this ahead? is. <laughs> <laughs> so as a Navy man. He's been going to the Navy and being like, hey, I really want to go to Antarctica. Can I please go to Antarctica? And the Navy's like, uh, if you raise some money, we'll give you a ship. Yeah. But this time, the Navy is like, you know what, Richard? <laughs> now is the time. <laughs> okay. World War II is over. Uh, and people are already concerned about the Cold War. And they see Russia becoming a superpower and attacking America over the North Pole. Right. They just want to figure out what kind of equipment works in those conditions, okay. like what kind of things they would need to build, what kind of supplies they would need. And at the same time, they're just really interested in Antarctica. Like you said, it's like the last kind of undiscovered place. People think there are minerals down there. Someone saw a U-boat down there in like 1944. Well, and <laughs> there's the whole thing about New Swabia or right, right, right. Neuschwabenland. <laughs> Which was when the Nazis tried to claim Antarctica mm -hmm. as a Norwegian territory. I mean, and it's like parts of Norway. And they said that this is, you know, our territory and we're going to militarize it. So, you know, it wasn't they saw one U-boat. It's literally the Nazis were like, we claim this land for us. Now, the problem, I mean, they, they made no formal territorial claim. Mm -hmm. They made a map. <laughs> right. And the map was what made everybody very angry. Because <laughs> you're not supposed to, like, claim Antarctica. It gets super complicated, but yeah, uh, nobody's allowed to claim Antarctica. It's the Antarctic Treaty System doesn't... Right. Yeah. So at this point, different countries have, like, interest in Antarctica, and they have scientific bases, um, and they have ideas for kind of what they want to do in the future there, what kinds of territories they're interested in. Okay. So part of this operation, which comes to be known as Operation High Jump, is really just a chance for the Navy to get a huge mission going down there to show everybody they have what it takes to exist in Antarctica. Like, they're a world superpower at this point, yeah. and Antarctica is part of their PR mission. All right, so Bird is given the go-ahead. <laughs> Um, and with the full support of Truman and the Navy, he ends up with an absolutely massive expedition. I like to think that his full wish list was, like, completely taken care of. And then they were like, oh, and would you like blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Can we also throw in a vending machine? And, and let's would you not, like a Santa Claus? Let's not sugarcoat this either. <laughs> I mean, at this point in his life, Richard Byrd was a rear admiral. He was not just some dude in the Navy. No, he was a full-on celebrity yeah. um, within the Navy. and Although he was retired... Life when they gave him the charge of Operation High Jump, because Operation High Jump was technically led by Rear Admiral Ethan Larson. Right. But it was organized by retired Rear Admiral Richard Byrd. But he's he's not, like, on the ground first. He's not designing the equipment. Right. He's, like, 
in the rear part of this mission. He's on the USS Philippine Sea, which is the last part of the fleet to arrive. So at the, this point in the story, he's still in America. Okay. Like this whole project takes place over the course of just weeks and weeks. Okay. So he ends up with something like 4,700 sailors, 13 yeah. ships, and 20 plus aircraft. Okay. Which includes uh, DC-47s, Sikorsky helicopters, and PBM seaplanes. Right. Uh, and this is also the point where, right, right. This is the point where the operation kind of gets a cool code name. They're Operation High Jump. They're good to go. <laughs> so we're going to gloss over the helicopters and the DC-47s because those stay with the main fleet for the most part. And they're not really part of the story. All right. Wait, wait, wait. Because this, this is important. Does High Jump, is it an acronym? Does it actually stand for anything? No, and the following missions, oh. which kind of like follow in the footsteps oh. of High Jump, are called Operation Deep Freeze, which is like such a better oh. name. I, I'm sorry, oh, U.S. Navy, I'm man. not telling you how to name your missions, but... <laughs> At least give it a cool acronym. Yeah, I think what they're thinking of is like jumping over the poles. I mean, if you're going Maybe. to space, call that Operation High Jump. Kind of a muscular name. Sure. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was just like they were going alphabetically and it was H's turn. <laughs> that could totally <laughs> and be. And they're like, no, the next one is I. We could do something with ice. And they're like, nope, sorry. Unless you want to launch another operation. Yeah, so in all my rabbit holing, I could not find out why it was called Operation High Jump. I think someone was just like, hey, it's a cool name. We should use that. Sure. So we're going to kind of ignore... The DC-47s, even though... Uh, can we do a quick sidebar? Yeah. Uh, the Navy figures out how to put skis on the landing gear. Yes. So that they can actually be flown in. <laughs> there, are, there are pictures of them, and they're, they're delightful. <laughs> so I actually watched a documentary that the Navy made from film that was taken on this mission, and you can see them coming in, and it's just... It's truly impressive. You think, oh, no, 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 no. And then it lands, and you're like, wow! <laughs> It's cool. It's like stunt flying. Very high stakes. Yes. Yes. Uh, so the PBM planes are the ones we're going to concentrate on. Right. And PBM stands for Patrol Bomber Martin. Yeah. Martin is the name of the manufacturer. Yep. Which is now Lockheed Martin. Yes. And I had never seen one of these. I don't know. I don't watch a lot of World War II movies. They're but weird looking. They're are... sort of like snub-nosed with like... Yeah, they don't look aerodynamic. They're big, thick planes. They're not... They don't look like... If, if you're imagining a fighter plane... They don't mm -hmm. look like that. <laughs> they look more like an right. Airbus that just kind of got squished. <laughs> right, with the wings yanked way up on yep. top. Yep. And they don't look like they can fly at all, but they can. They can yeah. take off and land on water. They don't have any kind of landing gear whatsoever. Okay. So they just take off and land on water. They're absolutely graceless. Yeah. If you're thinking of seaplanes, you're thinking of those little guys with like the pontoons and the struts and the little propeller up front. Yeah, that's not That this. is not what PBMs are. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. These are these are the guys nickname. who at the public pool only know how to do a cannonball. Like that's who these yes, guys are. That's all they do. <laughs> Their nickname is flying boats. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what they look like. They look like submarines with wings on them. <laughs> that's that's actually fairly accurate, yeah. So even though they don't look aerodynamic, they're absolutely workhorses. Yeah. And during World War II they were like reconfigured and redesigned to do all kinds of tasks. They were in the Pacific, they were in Europe, they were just used everywhere. Yeah. The Navy loves them, which I think is one reason why they use them. They get taken along. Sure. Yeah. So there are six PBMs attached to this mission and they're all named George. Why? It's George One, George Two, George Three. I will tell you why. Oh good. <laughs> So we met George Dufek in our little yeah. story at the beginning there. He's a friend of Bird. Okay. And I don't know why, but Bird <laughs> decided to name the Georges after George. Okay, okay. <laughs> George 1, George 2, George 3. Um, and it kind of makes sense because Dufek is commanding this like coastal mapping portion right. of Operation High Jump. So the DC-47s are going to map the interior and they're going to do that by, like, flying really low and slow and taking pictures. Okay. The PBMs, the Georges, are going to go around the coast. So they're going to do the coastline. Okay. And the big guys are going to do the interior. And this is just mapping. Like, it's not like they're doing radar mapping or anything like that. It's literally just the dudes are flying overhead and sketching stuff out. This is where Bird's wish list gets, like, out of control. Okay. Like, I'm sure he was like, hey, I think we should map Antarctica. And the Navy was like, what? If, while we're mapping, we also look for uranium. Oh, goodness. So they are filming with these 
triple cameras. They're called trigometrons. They're not motion picture cameras, but they take a picture every three seconds and they're panoramic. Okay. So if you can imagine like three film cameras wired together, each taking a picture every one third of a second um, in such a way that they overlap. Gotcha. It was cutting edge. Uh, You had to be specially trained to work these cameras. And they were put in a little plexiglass bubble, kind of where the gun turret would be. They're all named George again. I'm sorry, I have to hit this again. Yeah. Because I don't want to give you too much foreshadowing here, but George Dufek absolutely does not have a fun time on this mission. Uh, Okay. So at the time that the Georges are ready to get going on their mapping mission, he has already fallen into the ocean twice. Wait, George uh, Once inside a helicopter. Oh, no. <laughs> once inside a helicopter, yeah. Oh, my God. And on his way home, he's going to fall in again, and he's going to spend 11 minutes in the Antarctic Sea. Oh, my God. He survives, but uh, I just I don't picture him having a great time on this trip. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. Some people love the cold water. Uh, so the Georges are split between two seaplane tenders. That's the Currituck and the Pine Island are the names of those ships. Okay. The tenders are not aircraft carriers, which is what I was picturing originally. So they can't actually like launch anything. Okay. They're just transport ships, and they're not huge. Uh, they can hold three Georges apiece, and that's with the wings taken off, and they're kind of the bodies are lashed to the deck, and everything is stored. They're just like every time they want to fly one of these Georges. They are putting it together on the deck. They're lowering it over the side, and then they're taking off. Okay. So it's not like what you're picturing with an aircraft carrier where the jets just get ready to go and come screaming down the runway, and that's that. Right. There's a lot of work that goes into this. The plan for Operation High Jump is that this huge fleet is going to sail to Antarctica and split into three groups. The main group is going to go on through the pack ice. They have an icebreaker out in front. They have a submarine for some reason in the rear. Okay. Okay, one icebreaker. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah. It's not enough. You want more. Yeah. And their their job is just to set up a base called Little America. Yeah. Well, this is actually Little America because Bird had Right, they're building up, on top of 1, 2, and 3. Bird had set up Little America 1 in 1929. And there is a film called With Bird at the South Pole in 1930, and it's a hoot. Oh, boy. What the Navy does is they try to prepare for every possible contingency. They're taking what they know about working in the Arctic, because they do have a base in Greenland at this point. Okay. And they're trying to apply that to new technology in the Antarctic. Right. So these guys on the Koreatuck and the Pine Island have the Georges that have been, like, refit, in theory, to be better as cold weather planes. They've also got tons and tons of spare parts. And the planes, every time they go out, are equipped with all kinds of stuff. They have emergency radio backups they have battery backups they have camera backups they have extra film okay they have sleeping bags they have tents they have life rafts they just they're throwing a lot of resources at this project good uh the currituck goes west okay where incidentally they promptly lose one of their georges over the side this is all in the documentary (laughs) it just goes whoop (laughs) so they've only got two uh, and the Pine Island and her group is heading east, and they have Dufek on board. Uh, Dufek is in touch with the Kuretak through radio, but he's assigned to this eastern group. So is the plan to have one group sail east, one group sail west, and they just sort of circle around Antarctica and then meet back at Little America? Exactly. Oh, cool. Okay. That, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense then. Yeah. You can see on a map how it would work really well. Yeah does not work well at all Mm -hmm. so they split up and then last week of december the pine island anchors next to a huge iceberg and they think by doing this they can be like in the lee of the iceberg okay so they'll have calmer waters for the pbms to take off so they've never been down to the antarctic before no and i don't (laughs) think they really have an accurate (laughs) idea of what the weather is going to be like one of the things they're down there is to really observe how bad the weather can be in the summer remember this is like the summer in antarctica this is the mildest weather yeah because they're down there in december right and that's that's antarctic summer yeah right and the sun never sets nope um and then it will be above freezing for a couple days wow (laughs) but it's not 
It's not summer the way we think of summer. It's summer the way the penguins think of summer. So we know that their planning kind of partially works because the Curatech gets their end of the project going, <laughs> like no problem. Except for losing one of their Georges, but yeah. Except for losing one. I mean, but you know, it gives everybody a little more There you room. go, sure. <laughs> silver lining, silver lining. Oh. Uh, the weather cooperates where they are. They can get the planes in the air. They're taking pictures. They're making progress. That's not the case for the Pine Island group. Yeah. So they are starting out in a part of Antarctica called the Phantom Coast. And why is it called the Phantom Coast, Ella? <laughs> so, <laughs> a number of reasons, Greg. Uh, it's deadly. Like, humans yeah. are not built to survive in this area. Yeah. It's extremely, extremely remote. You have the worst weather in the world. I think even, even satellite images yeah. show this coastline as being almost constantly clouded in and it's not just overcast it's things like blizzards uh ice storms terrible terrible yeah, weather when you get storms down there it's everything it's everything at minus 10 yep. degrees at the warmest so it's uh. the other reason why it's called the phantom coast is that it's almost impossible to chart so the british have been kind of trying to pick out land features yep. uh, for a few years <laughs> But you have like these glaciers coming off the shore and there are ice flows everywhere. They're constantly changing shape. Plus, it's hard to get close to the land. It's hard to even know where yeah. the land begins. Yeah. And of course, the water is always rough. Yeah. Uh, and remember, the PBMs need to take off and land on the water. So they need relatively calm weather to do that. Right. The other unsettling thing about this area, there are no landmarks. Yeah. So you're thinking about like a constantly overcast sky like white ground that might be ice or might be land yep. uh, and nothing to really orient yourself because even the sun is going in weird directions yep. because it's always in the sky uh. <laughs> so these guys are navigating using charts developed by the british which are described as sparse to the point of unhelpfulness in one source <laughs> okie doke <laughs> Super helpful. These guys are in great shape. Operation High Jump is going fantastic. I mean, the nice thing about a blank map is you get to fill it in. That's right. <laughs> I mean, you're full of silver linings. Like, today. See, here's the thing, though. It's like little like ice chunks of Antarctica are constantly breaking off and leaving. So right. mapping this coast is kind of a fool's errand anyway. It's an interesting idea, yeah. which I think is the nicest thing you can say about it. Um, but you really need like ground penetrating radar you need satellite images like it, it's the kind of thing that can't be done at this point because of the technology that's sure. available and that makes sense and you know we still don't know exactly what the phantom coast looks like so <laughs> i'm i'm trying not to judge too that's hard right. but these guys phantom really thought they could get out there and get it yeah. done yeah yeah well hey you know that's good old american can do itness. it's this mission is very much in that spirit i mean <laughs> so we've got our equipment okay so the Pine Island is under control of a captain and an executive officer, who's kind of like a first mate. Yeah. So they're both in control of the ship and the sailors and the pilots, because they're all kind of working on the same crew. And during their sail to the Antarctic, they have settled into kind of a good cop, bad cop dynamic. Right. So we met the bad cop in our story. That's executive officer Isidore Schwartz. Yep. He sounds like kind of a blowhard. He's from Brooklyn. Uh, he loves rules. He hates people. He's very strict. I like this guy. Uh, he has a wicked <laughs> potty mouth. <laughs> <That's sweet. laughs> and then he will also discipline you for swearing. Okay, fair enough. And he also is remembered for screaming at people from behind a bullhorn all day. Oh my God. And that just sounds like a lot. He sounds like a movie character. Like this isn't a real person. <laughs> he totally does. And so does so does our good cop. Uh, he also sounds like a Hollywood okay. hero. He's uh, that's Captain Henry Howard Caldwell. Okay. Yep. So he's calm, he's reasonable, he's a former football star, uh, career Navy, dependable, fair, just a solid guy. You get the feeling he has like a square jaw. Yeah. So the sailors and pilots on the Pine Island seem to have a universal dislike of Schwartz and a universal admiration and respect for Caldwell. Okay. So now let's talk about the crew that was on the George 1 flight. Yeah. This is only the second flight of the mission, so they haven't really been working together very long at the time of this incident. Okay. So first we have a photographer, Owen McCarty. He's 25, he just got married, he's from California. Okay. 
he gets along with the others, but his closest friends are on the other flight crews. Oh. He sounds like he's great with the cameras, not great with people. Well, he's not super outgoing. It's, you know you know that thing where you get picked last for the team at recess and all your friends are on the other team and it just kind of takes the fight out of you. Yeah, and he's good at his job. Like I He's trained. Imagine. He knows what he's doing. He has respect of his of the other of the rest of the crew he's just not super friendly okay Okay. so that's mac and then we have our plane commander ralph leblanc he's from louisiana he has a heavy cajun accent okay he's called frenchy i'm just gonna call him frenchy throughout because everybody calls him everybody calls him frenchy uh frenchy is the life of the party yes uh i don't know if i can just leave it at that he's bigger than life uh (laughs) loves a joke Always talking, loves the ladies, loves to dance, sure, etc. Then we have a navigator. His name is Maxwell Lopez. He's a nice Catholic boy from Newport, Rhode Island. Okay. Uh, he goes by Val because cool. he looks like Rudolph Valentino. Okay. Like he really does. Cool. <laughs> he has the same eyebrows. <laughs> uh, Val loves the cold. He's been working in Greenland for the past year. He's ambitious. Uh, okay. And he really jumps at the chance to go to Antarctica and work with Bird. Then we have a radio man, Wendell K. Henderson. He goes by Bud. He is, like Val, career Navy, very ambitious. He's a veteran of the war. He survived Pearl Harbor. Has a gorgeous mustache. Gorgeous. Good. This operation needs a dude with a solid mustache. Yes, and uh, Bud Henderson is our mustache. All right. Lieutenant Bill Kearns is the co-pilot, so he's up there in the cockpit with Frenchie. Yep. Um, He's from Boston. He loves flying. He's a huge admirer of Bird. And he's got a bit of a wild streak. Okay. So the most recent thing that he did to piss Schwartz off was to fill <laughs> coconuts with rum, which they acquired oh, when they went through Panama, <laughs> um, to smuggle on board. Of course. And then he had to toss them overboard without anyone finding out because they went rotten right uh, away. Uh, yeah. Basic chemistry, but <laughs> So basically, so, so you've got Frenchie and, and Bill Kearns flying the plane both of whom right. are they're excellent pilots I'm i want to i want to be They'd clear have they to have be. they have, have thousands yeah. of hours of flight time they're very very experienced uh frenchie says that kearns is the best instruments pilot uh he's ever flown with awesome and that's so saying they're... something in 1946 like seriously that's that's <laughs> no i'm not making of... a joke that's a huge deal it really is yeah okay they're kind of screw-ups off the plane but on the plane, on the they're... plane they're awesome got it they do great yep Uh, So we've got a couple more people. Uh, Bill War is the flight engineer. He's a little guy. Like, he's much shorter and slighter than the others. And he's really young. He's 19. Uh, So he missed the war. This is his first first, uh, stint with the Navy. Okay. And he is best friends with James Robbins, the radar operator. Okay. Uh, Robbins goes by Robbie. He's also 19. And he's the guy everybody likes. Like, you can see it in the pictures of these guys together. He's like this tall, goofy kid. He's fresh out of the Eagle Scouts. He has this wild hair. Nice. And he's smiling in every single picture, even the former one. Even awesome. the formal ones. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and he and War are famous on the ship for being brilliant mechanics. They can MacGyver up whatever you want. Good. You need that. <laughs> Such a talent. Yeah. Yes. God, you need that. <laughs> so around midnight on December 30th, the weatherman on the Pine Island reports that the seas are coming down the conditions are good for a flight. Now, they've just had their first successful flight in the George 3. Okay. And they're way behind schedule, so everyone's really excited about this. Uh, so there's this last-minute scramble to get George 1 ready. Okay. They only have a tiny window to get the plane assembled, uh, to get it into the water, fueled up, and into the air. So each of those parts of the process is labor-intensive, takes a lot of time. Yep. And they already know from dealing with the weather that it's going to change it's gonna on suck. any second. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so as they're kind of getting equipment in and out, their regular crew chief, uh, J.D. Dickens, suits up and he's ready to hop on the plane. At the very last minute, the doctor says, remember that abscess that you have? You really should not be going in the plane. Oh, no. Okay. Uh, so they argue a little bit. Dickens goes back to the infirmary. And that's when they swap in Fred Williams. So okay. he belongs to crew number two. He doesn't know these guys super well. Uh, he's an aviation machinist. Uh, so he's also a mechanic. Okay. He is 26. He's from Tennessee. So he is a veteran of World War II. He spent it in the Pacific. He's unmarried, but he's super close to his parents and his siblings. And he writes home to them like every couple weeks. 
he just sounds like a great big brother. Uh, sure. Earlier in the mission, he sends a letter home to his parents that says, tell those kids that I passed old Santa Claus on his way up from the South Pole and sent their presents back by him. Aw. So he's that kind of guy. Yeah, I like it. And then at the very last minute, like as they're loading on their the last of their fuel, the ship's skipper, Captain Henry Howard Caldwell, decides to go along as an observer. Oh, okay. Which is not completely unexpected because Schwartz went on the first flight. So there are nine people aboard when the crew is able to get the plane in the air and away at around one o'clock in the morning, which, remember, is not dark. Right. Because there is no dark. <laughs> there is no dark. <laughs> it sounds so disorienting and horrible. Uh. So the George One runs into trouble almost immediately. This is her first flight in the Antarctic, and it's much, much colder than they were expecting. And the plane okay. is behaving a little strangely. So the cloudy, kind of snowy weather, combined with the blank charts and the endless sun and the lack of landmarks. Jeez. <laughs> it just, it sounds like... This is this is like a what could possibly go right moment. <laughs> like exactly, oh my exactly. God. Like you're expecting one thing to go right, and then they're fine, and nothing, nope. nothing does. Uh, they're having trouble with frost on the inside of the plane, which is not where you want frost to be. No, generally not. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> and the ice buildup on the outside of the plane is getting to the point where the wings don't work as well as they should. The hydraulic systems are having trouble. Jeez. And the radar is working fine. Uh, Jim Robbins, Robbie, at yep. the radar is seeing mountain ranges ahead and scattered icebergs below. Okay. So they've so got about some four hours of this. Yeah. Four hours of this. And remember, they're all like can do yep. gung ho kind of people. So they go. make it work. Uh, after about four hours of this, Bud Henderson radios the Pine Island with their coordinates and a weather report, and he does say that visibility is zero. <laughs> Which is less than <laughs> ideal when you're flying a plane. I mean, I guess it can be done. Yeah. But uh, it's not what you're hoping for, and especially no. not if you're trying to take pictures. Or land? Right. I mean... Yeah. God. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so at some point, Frenchie and Kearns kind of agree that it's time to wrap things up and head back. Okay. And they're all kind of feeling like the trip has been a wash so far. They can't take pictures. Uh, Mac, the photographer, say. is asleep in the tail section of the plane. Oh, uh, he's totally given up. He can't take pictures. <laughs> There's frost in that little plexiglass bubble. Oh, God. He doesn't even have his cameras in there. So Caldwell is sitting in the plexiglass bubble, drinking coffee and waiting to see if he can get a view. Okay. Robbie is working the radar and giving readings to the pilots and the navigator and the radio man. And they're all huddled together in the flight deck, which is right behind the cockpit. So right. between the wings. And up ahead, Kearns and Frenchie are in the cockpit flying the plane. Okay. This is extremely unpleasant. Yeah. Suddenly, Frenchie and Bill Kearns realize they've made a huge mistake in their instrument readings. Okay. They think, and their instruments are telling them, that they're over water. But they're not. They're actually over Thurston Island, which is invisible because of the weather. And it's okay. covered in snow and glacier. So it's white on white in a white sky. Um, so it's not like they can look out the windshield and see that they're coming up on this granite ridge, which is oh, just under the no. snow at the okay. top of the island. Yeah. So they're about to essentially fly into a mountain and they have no way of knowing it. Right, they think they have plenty of room under them, and they're flying over a flat surface. They think right. they're flying over water or ice. And they've been flying low and slow to try and get out of the clouds. Right. And when they realize they're right on top of Thurston, they pull up to try and avoid this completely unexpected ridge, and they can't quite make it. Okay. The George One crashes into the rock, the engines explode, and it breaks apart. There is oh, absolutely no warning. Yep. And nobody except Frenchie even has a seatbelt on. Which sounds careless, but when you think about flights, no. yeah, it, it makes sense. If nothing's going on, you're like up and moving around. You're getting coffee. You're using the bathroom. You are working yeah. your instruments. You're not necessarily strapped in and preparing for an emergency. And that is certainly the case God. during this unfortunate accident. Okay. So the plane is flying so low and so slow. And it's so cold out, all those factors work together to kind of minimize the impact of the crash. Here's what happens to the crew. 
Bill Kern's no seatbelt is thrown through the windshield and lands in the snow. Okay. He's unconscious. He's not killed. No. At the point of impact, the plane is flying so low and so slow that there is actually a good chance of survival for the people who are thrown out of the airplane. Okay. So Bill Kern's no seatbelt is thrown through the windshield and lands in the snow, which is this kind of powdery snow. And remember, they're on a slope. So they have this kind of like nice soft place to fall into. Okay. Not that any of this is ideal, but that's why they don't die. They fall into the snow. Okay. Frenchie, his co-pilot, is uninjured in the crash, but is trapped in the cockpit as it catches on fire. Because remember, the PBMs are full of gas. The only thing they're really carrying on this mission is flight instruments, uh, camera equipment, and gas so they can make the longest trips possible. Yeah. Oh, no. So the cockpit fills up with aviation fuel and starts to burn. Caldwell is thrown through the plexiglass bubble. Remember, he's sitting in the bottom of the plane. He lands on his face on a piece of fuselage, and he's also knocked out. One of the wings comes loose. Uh, Remember, these are detachable wings uh, with an engine on the end. And the engine propeller goes right through the flight deck, and this (gasps) kills... Val Lopez and Bud Henderson instantly and mortally wounds Fred Williams. It just misses Robbie and War, who are right behind the flight deck. So all of them are thrown free. Uh, Williams survives the initial crash. He dies about two hours later from massive injuries. In the tail end of the plane, Mac is in his sleeping bag, and he is dumped out of the tail section of the plane as it breaks apart. He hits his head, um, and then he falls into the snow. Robbie is thrown out of the plane and lands upside down in the snow. He's relatively unharmed, but he's unconscious. Bill War, the smallest and lightest person on the crew, is also thrown out of the flight deck, and he describes cartwheeling in this like powdery kind of ski slope snow down the slope. Oh god! Uh, so like he's away the only... from the wreckage. Right, away from the wreckage, away from the fire, and into the snow. Is he the only one that remains like conscious? Yeah, he's the only survivor who never loses consciousness. And he probably saves the lives of the others by waking them up or dragging them towards the fire before they can freeze to death. Uh, In fact, when Robbie regains consciousness, it's because War is shaking him by the shoulder and shouting at him. Do they get Frenchie out of the burning cockpit? Yeah, so when he comes to a few seconds after the crash, Kearns is aware of two things immediately. Uh, one, that the cockpit is on fire and Frenchie is trapped inside and screaming for help. Two, he has a broken arm. He has some kind of massive compound fracture in all the bones in his arm. Oh, God. Okay. Which, of course, is his dominant arm, his right arm. He somehow is able to get back into the burning cockpit and get Frenchie's seatbelt buckle open, but he can't pull him out. Frenchie's a big guy, and yeah. Kearns can't pull him out with only one good arm. So luckily, War and Robbie are close enough to drag them both into the snow and put out their flight suits, which are on fire. Oh. Yeah. Kearns is burned on his good hand, and he loses his eyebrows. Okay. Uh, Frenchie, of course, is badly burned over his entire body. The worst of it is on his feet, where he had swapped his flight boots for tennis shoes just before the crash. Okay. Okay, so that's where everybody is immediately after the crash. The weather gets worse uh, yeah. because nothing can possibly go right for these guys. Yep. It's now below zero. It's pouring down snow. Uh, so at this point, all the survivors can do is make Williams and Frenchie LeBlanc as comfortable as possible and try to assess their injuries. Yep. Uh, Caldwell makes a sling for Kearns' broken arm. Robbie tries to disinfect Mac's head wound, which is like nine inches long and down to the skull. Oh. As they're doing this, they're also trying like crazy to build a shelter and rescue what they can from the wreckage before it burns up or gets covered with snow. Yeah. So in the end, they manage to make a nest in the tail section of the plane and they kind of huddle in there with their supplies, uh, which includes like tents, sleeping bags, 90 cans of apricots and spam. (laughs) My Uh, stomach is upset just thinking about that. Yeah. I I mean, but here's the thing. If you've got to live on it. Yeah. Uh, so it snows for days. These guys are stuck in there with their apricots and for how each other for days. How many days? <laughs> so the weather kind of comes and goes, but nobody is really clear on how much time actually passes because there's no night. Right. So they have watches on. The watches don't match each other. 
Okay. They're not sure what time it is. They can't use the position of the sun to really figure out what time it is. They know that they're like moving through days because their watches are telling them that 24 hours have gone by or whatever. Right. It doesn't really seem clear that they know what day it is or what time it is at any point in this. That Like they're, right. when they're writing down dates and times, it just doesn't agree. Okay. To further disorient yeah. everything in this story. <laughs> And over the next few days, they kind of slowly start to come together as a group. And I think it's really interesting, this dynamic that they kind of develop. They have a couple of huge advantages psychologically. So first, they have Caldwell with them. Yep. He's relatively uninjured, even though he broke all of his teeth. Oh, my gosh. Like, literally? Yeah. Literally. Every tooth in his head. Oh, my God. Uh, but despite his... Broken teeth. Caldwell's in fairly good shape. Okay. Um, and they already know that he's their leader. They already like and respect him. They think of him as trustworthy. Uh, and they know that his decision-making is sound. So a lot of times in situations like this, you see like a power struggle or yeah. like a split in decision-making. That doesn't happen with this group uh, because Caldwell is like twice their age. He's used to being in charge. They're yep. used to following his orders. Okay. That's good. Which I think is a huge advantage. <laughs> yeah. And then the second huge advantage that they have is Robbie. So his personality... He's just everybody's buddy, right? He's everybody's buddy, but he's also incredibly resourceful and smart. Okay. And he's a huge optimist. Like, I don't think... Yeah, op optimism cannot be downplayed in this sort of situation. You, exactly. You like, somebody... there's a lot to be pessimistic about. Yeah. So you need someone to kind of bring the energy back up to... To improve the vibes, right? <laughs> so I mentioned before that he's like, he's just got one of those personalities that everyone likes. Um, and he and War are both super handy problem solvers and just genius mechanics. So if you read his account of the ordeal, it's amazing. I highly recommend it. I don't think he ever thinks they might die out there. Wow. Like this might possibly be like a personality thing or it might be an age thing yeah like remember he's only 19 and at that age you think you're invincible no matter what anyway <laughs> i can't imagine thinking that in this circumstance but it honestly seems like he's so busy he doesn't ever think about like what's gonna happen if Next. nobody comes yeah. and rescues us yeah no that's the, hey that's how you keep from going crazy in those situations that's awesome. He treats wounds. He gets their radio going. He builds a stove so they can have water and coffee and hot food. He cooks. He builds a kite. He invents games. Uh, he and War get in the habit of playing a homemade version of the game Battleship. Jeez. <laughs> Ironically. Fittingly enough, yeah. <laughs> uh, and he's an Eagle Scout. Yeah. Uh, you so want this is like the people. ultimate <laughs> Eagle Scout project. Exactly. You want when in in the event of an emergency, you want resourceful optimists. That's what you want. Right. If the Navy had thought to pack Robbie away in like the emergency supplies, <laughs> they honestly could not have made a better choice. Wow. If you have to get stranded in the Arctic, in the Antarctic, I think you really want like you this want particular Robbie. dynamic. Yeah. You want a Caldwell, you want a Robbie, maybe you want some spam. You definitely want the apricots, you definitely want yep. the coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So all this is kind of balancing out the extreme horror of the situation. Yeah. The survivors are trying their best to care for Frenchie LeBlanc, who is burned beyond recognition, and he's slipping in and out of consciousness. He thinks he's back on the Pine Island. Oh, jeez. And at some point, he's asking the guys why they haven't taken him to the infirmary yet. Got it. Which just yeah, breaks my heart. That's yeah, they're doing what they can for him. They don't have painkillers. Yeah. And they got lots of snow. But that's about as yeah. good as it gets. <laughs> you don't want too much of that, yeah. Yeah. He actually doesn't seem to be in a lot of pain, probably because there's so much nerve damage. Nerve damage, exactly, yeah. And he is in good spirits when he's, like, awake. He's eating, he's drinking. Okay. But everyone except Robbie kind of maybe knows that he doesn't have a lot of time left. Like, his burns yeah. are too intense, and now he's got frostbite as and, well as burns. And at this point, Fred Williams has died, right? Fred Williams dies... Like on the first day. I want to say two hours after the crash. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Just has okay. massive injuries. And of yeah. course, Val Lopez and Bud Henderson are killed immediately. Right. So now three people are dead. Six people are surviving. Okay. Bill Kearns is doing what he can to help out. His arm is almost beyond repair. Okay. And unlike Frenchie, he is in a lot of pain. Yeah. Oh, 
Ugh. Coldwell is also in a lot of pain because his from teeth his are teeth. all busted out. Jeez. Right. And he also has a very painful, swollen, sore neck from the crash. Okay. When he gets back to the Pine Island, he's going to get an x-ray. And the x-ray is going to show that he has broken his neck. Yeah. That was I did not know that you could be question. up and mobile <laughs> with you, a broken vertebrae. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I've actually run into that before um, where there have been people who have broken their neck, not realized it, and been walking around for days or even weeks or in one particular case a, a year later and then you know either gone to complain about neck pain and got an x-rayed and the doctors are like well you're not going to believe this or oh they've gone to like do that stereotypical like crack your neck thing and dropped over mm -hmm. dead so oh god yeah oh boy so okay. when you the, the point of my story here is obviously <laughs> when you injure your neck go get it checked out guys it's not the it's not something to mess around with. Well, I'm sure Caldwell would love to get it checked out. Well, yes. Present company accepted, of course. <laughs> anyway. Uh, and then, finally, Mac has a serious concussion from okay. hitting his head. We already talked about his head wound, uh, which is starting to heal. But he... A lot of times, concussion can lead to, like, a personality change. Yeah. Did you know this? I did not oh, know yeah. this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, So Mac kind of went from a regular guy who was managing fine to this guy who immediately after the crash he is obsessed with the fact that he lost his wedding ring yes and it's all he talks about for days oh. which is a lot yeah which tells you that you know the concussion is a lot more serious than maybe like he obviously has a huge head wound yeah. but inside the brain things are not working as they should right when robbie is able to find his wedding ring mac puts it back on and starts writing a goodbye letter to his wife okay so he has sat down and given up. Caldwell intervenes at this point and suggests that Mac starts keeping a daily log instead. And this project really saves Mac. He sits there and writes down every single thing that happens from that point forward. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Caldwell also does one more thing. He presides over a burial service that they hold for Williams, Lopez, and Henderson. And this is like a full, it's as much as they can manage of a full kind of naval service with honors yeah they bury them with a lot of metal around their bodies yep. so as much of the fuselage and as much as the cans as they can so that the burial site can be picked up on later. radar yep later on right so they're a relatively functional group at this point which is great uh because they are completely stuck remember they have no landmarks nothing to look at nothing to walk towards they have no maps they have no signal on the radio even though they know the radio is working uh, and they all have different ideas on where they are based on the last information that they can remember from the flight. Right. Which, of course, was wrong. <laughs> right. And the one person who might have been able to get a more accurate fix on their position is Val Lopez, the navigator. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so these guys are completely lost. They don't know where they are. They also don't know if the Pine Island is looking for them. Uh, okay. So they have a couple clear days over the next week. But they never see or hear a plane. Oh, um, they have enough food for a month. They can melt snow and get water. But they all know that in a few weeks it's going to start getting dark. Yeah. And there is no way, no way that they're going to survive a winter in the Antarctic. Yeah. Uh, so they collect smoke grenades from the wreckage, thinking that they can use that to signal a plane. Right. And, you know, they just take care of each other. They try to heal up as best they can. They take care of Frenchie. They fuss with the radio one of the big things that they spend a lot of time doing is cranking up the radio and seeing if they can get a signal they never can oh they never get one okay because their range is something like 15 to 20 miles and at this point the pine island is out of that range hundreds of miles away oh yeah. god that far yeah. away that far away because remember they've been flying for five hours when they crash oh my they're like god. at the point where they were going to turn around so it's not even that the pine island like, the Pine Island might not even know where they are. Exactly. Okay. That got a yep. lot. It's not like they were falling. Oh, yeah, they must have crashed from here to here. It's, you know, wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's dire. That's not good. <laughs> and remember, everyone except Caldwell has very little faith in Isidore Schwartz. Right. Right. Because they mostly know him as, like, the guy with the bullhorn screaming about their haircuts and curfews. <laughs> 
Um, Fair enough. And it's hard for them to imagine that that he can manage to inspire people to put together a rescue in what they now know is the worst weather in the world. Yeah. And remember, even if they're spotted, the PBMs can't land on snow, and they're way outside the range of the helicopters. Right. So at the end of the first 10 days, they start thinking that maybe they'd better hike in the direction of where they think the coast is. Okay. With their life raft. Oh, that sounds like a really bad idea. But then yeah. again, it's one of those, like, what else are you going to do? Well, Caldwell puts a stop to it. Good. Uh, he you, knows Caldwell. Schwartz. <laughs> he knows Schwartz a little better. Um, and he has absolute faith that Schwartz will be able to figure out where the plane went down and how a rescue can happen. So he okay. sees his role in this group as encouraging everyone to stay put and kind of make the best of things until they can be spotted. Okay. Uh, so he keeps coming up with little projects for everyone to pass the time, like keeping the wreckage clear of snow so they can be spotted. Smart. And when they find a can of yellow paint, he has Robbie paint the names of the dead crew members on the wing in three foot high letters so that they can be read from above. Okay. So on day 12, they hear a plane in the distance and they freak out. They set off all the smoke grenades all at once. Oh no. And they kind of jump around and scream themselves hoarse. The smoke grenades turn out to be white smoke. Oh no. They're completely oh, invisible. Oh no. Against the snow and the sky. The oh, plane doesn't see them. Okay. Imagine being in that situation, knowing that your friends are up there looking for you, setting off your smoke grenades. Yep. I would have curled up and died at that point. Uh, yeah, that is extremely demoralizing. <laughs> <laughs> so on day 13, instead Ugh. of succumbing to complete despair, which is what I would do at this point, they pile all their flammables together. And just light Now this is, includes survival gear. Like this is their tents, their parachutes, their okay. life raft, the batteries from the radio, the film from the cameras, and they soak it all in aviation fuel. Okay. And then they take turns staring at the sky, which is clear for the first time in two weeks. And this is their first piece of good luck. A plane appears. Okay. It is a bright blue PBM with an American flag painted on the wing. Robbie and Mac get the fire going and they all watch. And Mac says in his account, they're all screaming, it's two, it's two. It's the George two. The George two, yep. Yep. The plane switches course, it drops down in the sky, and it heads directly for them. I okay. cannot imagine the relief. And it crashes into the same mountain <laughs> that they crashed into. <laughs> no, their luck has changed. Okay, just checking. <laughs> so back on the Pine Island, just still anchored out by old Bessie. It still has the worst luck and the worst weather of Operation High Jump. Things have not been going well over the past couple weeks. Yep. Like Caldwell thought, George Dufek and Schwartz have been working around the clock to get a rescue mission in the air. But every time they get a break in the weather, something goes horribly wrong. Oh, like no. They start keeping one of the Georges on the water so it's ready to go. Okay. Uh, but when the weather clears, it smashes into the side of the ship oh, before geez. it can take off. And the other George keeps breaking. Like first it has propeller trouble and then a pontoon snaps off. In the end, they decide to cannibalize George three for parts. And okay. after a lot of screaming from Schwartz, uh, George two is finally able to take off and start searching. But it takes almost two weeks to get to this point, which had to have been right. maddening. Yeah. And remember the Pine Island hasn't heard from the George one since before the crash. Yeah. So they don't really know where to start looking. And because so much time has passed, they're really looking for the wreck yeah. and the remains. They're not expecting to find survivors. No. And they know also that if the George one came down over the water, there is absolutely zero chance no thing. anything yeah. can be found. There's nothing. Yeah. yeah. So uh. Schwartz has them concentrate on the last section of land they were known to have been near, which is Thurston Island. You'd think that would be helpful, but Thurston Island is the size of Massachusetts. Yeah. It's really yeah. big. It's huge. Uh, and the George 2 crew are on their last leg of their grid for their second day of searching. They're almost out of gas, and they spot the smoke from the bonfire, and you can just imagine how thrilled they must have been. Right. They fly over. They're low enough to read the note on the wing. Yep. And they start making these tight circles over the camp, and they start dropping everything they can think of, like food, skis, warm clothes, uh, medicine. A bottle of extremely contraband whiskey. <laughs> they also work out a way to get a note down. And the note says, Open water 10 miles dead north. If you can make it to the lake, form a circle. 
if not form a straight line. Okay. When the survivors on the ground are able to get the note, they have about 30 seconds to talk it over. In the end, they make a circle. Okay. And the Dirge 2 heads back to Pine Island to refuel. Okay. So these guys have food, they have skis, they have 10 miles to go, which doesn't sound like a lot until you consider... It's 10 miles into Antarctica, <laughs> yep. ...that the weather is clear, and so now, after, like, two weeks of haze, they're squinting against this incredible dazzle Blinding. of the sun on snow. Yep. Yeah, which can actually blind you. Yeah, I have no yeah. idea. It can really cause damage to your eyes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why those, no one's those in great shape. goggles are, like, necessary for these explorers. Mm, I always thought it was a style choice. I had no idea. <laughs> uh, so no one is in great shape physically. They've yeah. all lost a ton of weight. Uh, Mac and Kearns are still struggling with serious injuries. And, of course, Frenchie can't walk. Yep. And they don't know what's between them and the lake. They're coming off a glacier, which means crevasses and bad ice. Yep. Once they get to the lake, they still have to get themselves into the water without getting into the water if you know what i mean right yeah. uh like there's no beach there's no landing spot it's surrounded yeah. by ice cliffs and, and it's probably 30 degrees at the surface yeah uh but these guys still have a little can-do spirit good they make a sled for frenchie they pass the whiskey around and off they go okay so the george two refuels swaps crews and takes off again as soon as possible they make it to the lake and they realize immediately that they can't just sit and wait because the ice around the edge of the lake isn't navigable like, it's, it's got huge spikes coming into the water. Oh, jeez. Okay. And it's a lot colder than they were expecting. So the plane has to stay in the water and idle just to keep from freezing. Okay. So three of the crew get into their little rubber life raft and try to find a safe place to land. It takes them hours to carve out oh my like God. A, a, enough space for one person to get into the life raft. Okay. Uh, so when the weather starts getting worse... <laughs> Um, it starts to fog in and freeze almost immediately. Uh, so now the George 2 is taxiing so it doesn't get frozen into the ice. Jeez. And that's the point when the six survivors from George 1 make it to the lake. Okay. Just as they get to the shore, they're surrounded by dozens and dozens of emperor penguins. What? They're just absolutely bewildered. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. So we've suddenly hit the magical realism part of the film? I like, think we what? have. <laughs> Uh, Robbie bursts out laughing. He tries to get one on board the life raft. Yes. To take it back as a pet. Yes. <laughs> and Frenchie is miraculously alive enough to laugh hysterically and ask that someone take a picture of him with the penguins, which okay. they do. Uh, so the George II is able to get them on board. It lifts off at the last possible second in the oncoming storm, and they're back on Pine Island and receiving medical treatment and hot food within a couple hours. Wow. Okay. Big sigh of relief. That's the worst part of the story, and it's over. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the George one and the remains of Maxwell Lopez, Wendell Henderson, and Frederick Williams are still inside the glacier on Thurston Island. Yes. And so they know that it's possible to get down or to locate this wreckage, to dig down to it. To and they know where the it is. That's the and thing. they know where it is. Yeah. And but um, the. Can I talk of course, about knock yourself out. Can I talk about this one cuz this one kind of, you know. So there's there's a whole thing. Generally in the military, you uh, you do whatever you can to attempt to recover the bodies of people that you've lost. And in the early 2000s, the admiral in charge of that stated basically that they're pretty sure that the George 1 is under about 150 feet of ice. We don't want to risk well, mm -hmm. we don't want to risk the people. And it's going to cost a ton of money to try to go pick these people up and bring them home to their families. Some of whom are still around. Yep. Henderson's sister is in her 80s. And yeah, and Val Lopez has a nephew who's still living. Yep. And, and they've both petitioned their congresspeople to yep. get something going. And of course... One of the quotes that I, I definitely think less of here is that there was a Lieutenant Colonel uh, Rumi Nielsen Green, uh, mm -hmm. speaking for JPAC, uh, said, quote, We have 80,000 still MIA from World War II, and we have a budget. Do you spend all of your money on one site and forgo hundreds of others? End quote. And the problem with that is that they were promised that... Mm -hmm. these people would be returned home. And the thing is, Thurston Island is, it's a glacially dissected island. So it's distinct from the main land mass of Antarctica. 
and it mm-hmm. is constantly shedding. So Ken Terry of the Navy's casualty office has this quote, quote, we know where the wreckage is. Recovering these men would be feasible. It's expensive, but it's the right thing to do. When mm-hmm. that plane crashed, it was 10 miles from the coast. Now it's three. Yep. So the wreckage and the remains are slowly sliding to the coast and will soon fall off, end quote. It's a horrible thought. I can't imagine. So if the Navy doesn't feel like going out to collect these people in the next, you know, few years, then the mm-hmm. choice is going to be taken out of their hands anyway. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. It, it has to be horrible for the families to know where the remains where, are yeah, exactly. and to not be able to bring them home. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I did want to close with one last item that I found. Sure. This is quick. Uh, Val Lopez, who is maybe the person on board the George One with the most experience in the Arctic and the most affection for polar exploration, he and Bill Kearns shared a favorite poet. According to Kearns's recollection, Lopez loved the poem Spell of the Yukon, which is one of his best-known ones. Uh, it goes in part, There's a land where the mountains are nameless, and the rivers all run God knows where. There are lives that are erring and aimless, and deaths that just hang by a hair. There are hardships that nobody reckons. There are valleys unpeopled and still. There's a land, oh, it beckons and beckons, and I want to go back, and I will. Yeah. That is, to me, the story of the crash of the George One. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disaster at gmail.com. I want to uh, give you guys a quick apology. I had not been checking it regularly, and the spam filter had caught a lot of really nice messages. So if you sent us a message recently, thank you very much. (laughs) If you'd like to shame us publicly... Why not use our Instagram, which is at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange and dangerous and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. Uh, What's it going to be, Greg? It is going to be Nazi excavation of the Ark of the Covenant in 1936. Oh boy. I've heard about this. This is a wild story. This is a bananas story. Uh, that sounds amazing. I cannot wait to talk to you about that.